exciting, huh? Admiring your niece? Yes. Kind of came uh, right out of the blue, though, huh? Well, I, I guess that's the way it is with these uh, arranged situations. One minute you're strangers, the next minute you're sharing each other's toothbrush. Uh, I mean, after they're married, of course. So Ed is getting an arranged marriage in this episode with, uh, I guess we'll get to Debbie something, but I like this soundbite here in the opening, uh, obviously the exposition of Ed getting this arranged, uh, being part of this arranged marriage. And uh, I like that Joel, you know, kind of the euphemism uh, for maybe premarital sex is, uh, is sharing a toothbrush. And he says, no, of course, the, after they're married is, is when, they're, when they can share the toothbrush. Oh, that's neat. I didn't catch that. Uh, I thought he meant it literally. Which I think, I think maybe literally too, but it, it's funny that he puts the, um, the disclaimer, oh, after they're married. Yeah, yeah. Of I, course. I, <laughs> no, I think it works both ways. I, I, I think that your interpretation can be fine, that it's a premarital sex right there. Though I've never shared a toothbrush with anybody. I find that thought very disgusting. I don't want to shame you on that, but uh, do you share a toothbrush? No, yeah, that's not a, I, I don't think anyone really shares that. Uh, yeah, who would, that's kind of gross. Because <laughs> yeah, it's different I, I from like, uh, I guess you, when you kiss someone, you know, you might swap spit as it were, but it's not like you're trying to like, a toothbrush is used to remove plaque and stuff that you don't want in your mouth. So you don't want to be like, you know, putting that, you don't want to be licking someone's like toothbrush. That's it's a yeah, whole yeah, other thing. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. What, what are we talking about here, Lee? We're talking about uh, the TV series Northern Exposure. It aired in the 90s on CBS, and uh, this podcast is the Northern Overexposure podcast. You heard my name is Lee, and uh, I'm always joined by my co-host Charles. Uh, Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. Obviously, we're in season four now, so you're a bit of a veteran. Uh, but this is your first time watching this episode. Uh, it's titled Love's Labor Mislaid. What do you think of this episode? I have mixed feelings on this episode. Um, some of the plot lines resolved in a way that I enjoyed. I felt that it was thematically correct. And it is surprisingly very clear in 2021 eyes. Hmm. Um, one of them, particularly the hauling Ruth Ann plotline, I really enjoyed. Uh, I'm going to lay out my reasons for it, why later on in the episode. But yeah, this was an episode that I was looking at very critically. And I was looking at it with a lot of different lenses right there. I'm really curious to your thoughts, to my thoughts on this, Lee. But what about you? How did you feel about this? Yeah, I'd say this was like just a fine episode. It's uh, definitely not like a front runner for maybe one of my favorite episodes of the season, but it wasn't necessarily offensive or anything. There's, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's some things that I really like, some things that maybe uh, I don't like. I'm, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts uh, because I think there is a lot to talk about in this episode, whether it's good or bad. It's definitely a lot of uh, really interesting ideas and things that are happening throughout this episode. Just to get it out of the way, we mentioned the title of the episode, Love's Labor Mislaid. It's the 17th episode in season four. I believe that title is a reference to Shakespeare, Love's Labor Lost. Is that what the play is called? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So just a nod to uh, the bard. And the director of this episode is Joe Napolitano. I don't believe he directed any other episodes of the series. Though uh, I want to say he probably worked on a lot of the series. Let me check. 
Well, I can't say, you know, he only directed one episode of Northern Exposure. Uh, he seems to work a lot in TV, but most of the shows he only did, you know, one episode. Uh, a couple of shows, you know, maybe he directed a, a few more episodes. But uh, what stands out to me the most is he was the first assistant director on a lot of movies. Like it seems he worked with Brian De Palma on Blowout, Scarface, uh, Body Double, some um, among among other films. Uh, he was the first AD on Danny DeVito's Throw Mama from the Train on The Fisher King that was directed by Terry Gilliam. So it seems that he did a lot of his work on some pretty, uh, some pretty huge motion pictures uh, as the first assistant director. But here he is in Northern Exposure. Oh, okay. So he's dipped his toes around the water and everything. Yeah. Uh, who, was the, who was the writer for this episode? The writer is Jeff Melvoin, who coincidentally wrote the previous episode, Ill Wind, and um, Charles, you were telling me earlier, well, I, I showed um, a bit of fan mail to you, something that we received over a year ago, but I didn't want to share it with you until now, until you had seen this episode. Um, it's from Janice Cycle, who actually I think we've heard on this podcast before. I think he was on the, uh, I'll say like the season three or the season two retrospective. We played like a clip of audio that um, that he submitted when we were asking um fans of the show, what they thought of the season. Well, anyway, Janice Cycle mentioned to us uh, a, a lot of things about this episode that we'll probably will touch on. And Charles, you said you noticed this as well. But uh, one thing that's interesting about this episode that Janice Cycle points out is that it's almost like a um, sort of like a part two of Ill Wind, the last episode. They're both written by the same writer. And the um, the events of this uh, episode sort of pick up on what happened in the last episode, namely Joel and Maggie did the deed. They had sex in the last episode, obviously not, uh, not explicitly on screen, but it happened. Uh, at least I think it happened. We'll, we'll talk about that in this episode. Uh, but no, no, it, it, pretty, it happened. Um, but before we go any further, I just want to get out this last little bit. The air date for this episode was February 22nd, 1992. But yeah, with all that out of the way, Charles, what, where does that take us? What do you what do you think? What do you think of all this? Yeah, from my recollection, this seems to be one of the uh, first part two episodes that we're getting connecting the Ill Wind episode. Like you said, I guess it's because Ill Wind had like that that moment of like, oh, they finally did it. Yeah, and it, because it was such a pivotal moment, you have to immediately follow up with it with this episode right here. It wasn't like something that could return back to the status quo, but. In the very first scene, we actually get that very phrase from Joel. So let's start this episode okay. off by looking at what's going on here. So we start off with Joel helping Maggie as she gets off her plane from Anchorage. She looks like that she was gone for a couple weeks, days. It's not very clear how long she was gone, but she was gone for at least a period of time. And in this time, Joel is being very friendly with her. To which Maggie kind of picks up on, like it's kind of like uncharacteristically friendly to her <laughs> if she had, you know, like blacked out for her last encounter with Joel. And Joel tells her and he says, well, you know, I don't want any like uh, misunderstanding or anything, but I think it's good if everything returns back to the status quo. I hmm. want things to return back to normal, which will come back to bite him in the butt. <laughs> later in the episode. But it's also revealed that Maggie has, well, no idea what Joel was talking about. I thought this was really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously we just watched, uh, I guess it's been a while because we've been on break, but Charles, we watched the, the previous episode, Ill Wind, where it happened, you know, and they both admit that it happened to the town. Like they both said, 
hey guys, uh, we did it. Um, in that awkward, like kind of, in, uh, towards the end of the scene, uh, in that episode. But, um, I thought it would have been, might've been really interesting if the show, cause you know, the show does a lot of strange stuff, but if the show went on some weird, um, tangent, like an alternate reality or just like, uh, something where it was like, maybe it actually never did happen, you know? And this is like some sort of mind game with Fleischman. Like, did it actually happen? What, what's going on? But, but obviously, I mean, we learned through by the end of this episode, it's more of a thing where Maggie like blacked it out of her memory. So it really did happen. But I just thought that would have been kind of interesting if you opened the episode by sort of undoing what you saw in the last episode. It's like, wait, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, that kind of thing happens in, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like there's a season where they introduce a new character and, um, this, this new character, it's like maybe in the fourth season or something, but this new character is nowhere to be seen in the, in the previous seasons. But when she's introduced in the new season, everyone acts like she's always been there the whole time. Ah. And I thought that was like so wild. Uh, so what if something like that had happened here in Northern Exposure? But, uh, no, did it actually uh did it actually flow well through the episode or did they address that? They they end up addressing it um okay. throughout the series, but I think in that first episode it's very odd. You know, it's just like, wait, whoa, are we supposed to believe like it's like I guess so, but I think they kind of address it earlier on in the season. And then by the end of the season, you really know the full story, like why this character just kind of appears. Uh, I don't want to spoil it, obviously. It's a it's a really great show. Uh, really, oh, okay. really great story too, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. Just, just more of like, Joel is thinking, is this a mind game? Is she gaslighting me or what's going on here? Right. And I think that that's going to be the main storyline that this episode follows, but I want to lay the groundwork for the second storyline that's happening, which involves Ed. And we see Ed right after the opening credits where he is heading to the sauna and he's going to meet a character we've already been introduced to, Uncle Anko. Uncle Anku is back from probably one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. He was in the second episode of, uh, of this show. And, you know, perhaps he was probably mentioned throughout some other episodes. I could be wrong, but I don't think we uh, ever see him uh, since that original episode. And now we're in season four. Uncle Anku in the sweat lodge, you know, we got the... Uh, the characteristic pan flute sort of music that's very like native sounding, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, Ed's got to meet with Anku. I'm really glad to see him, but it's kind of a bummer that uh, Anku addressing uh, Ed, it's, uh, well, I guess in the end, it's it's just sort of like a suggestion, but he, you know, he's kind of almost pressuring in a way Ed to, uh, what does he say? He says, Ed, you need a woman. You need a wife. The sands of time are running. And uh, Anku says, uh, you know, you can have an arranged marriage. Well, also, I think this is uh, pretty sure we only see Uncle Anku with his shirt off, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. At least, uh, at least in this episode, I think uh, I think he's wearing a shirt at. I I I want to believe he's wearing a shirt at the dinner table in season in the uh, second episode. So <laughs> we do see him with the shirt, just not in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, like you were saying, Uncle Anko wants to arrange a, a marriage for Ed because he finds that he is getting to an age in which he needs to get married, which is, of course, a very outdated 
traditional idea in their tribe. Obviously, you, you we don't have that nowadays. Like that's just not a thing, especially not at that age. Like you wouldn't yeah. be like, all right, like right there, you gotta get married right there. So already we can introduce to one of our first themes that I think, which is going against um, tradition and societal constructs. Yeah, I'm guessing here, at least in this storyline, it's Ed's uh, own personal debate. Like, should he go against this um, this this uh, arranged marriage? Like, this is what you know his tribe does normally. I guess, as you said, Anku says, like, you know, you're at the right age right now for this to happen. Uh, though I will say, I think they're probably, you know, I think they're yeah. There's like ulterior motives that we'll get to. Like, it's we'll find out there is perhaps another reason why. Anku wants Ed to marry uh, marry this this woman, uh, Debbie something. We don't even get her last name at first, but uh, Debbie something. And, uh, you know, maybe it's kind of unclear, I think, by the end, because Anku, you know, he finally, at the end, he just says, well, it's just a suggestion, Ed. So who knows? But I think he might have an ulterior motive, which we can, we can touch on. But... Um, Theme-wise, yeah, that is uh, that is clear throughout the storyline. Um, do you think that theme would apply to any other uh, plot lines in this storyline, or is there any any sort of harmony going on there? Or yeah, I definitely think that it's going to be applied into uh, Maggie and Joel's theme right there, and also with Holling and Ruthann's. Nice. I think that this one is going to tie it all together right there. But which one of the storylines do you want to tackle first? Let's keep going with Ed. Yeah, I think we're on a good roll here, and uh, we've started. We've set it up, and we're ready to go. Ed has this personal dilemma. Uh, you know, I, I always thought I would pick my own wife, is what Ed says. Uh, so the next time we see Ed is actually at the brick. Chris uh, reminds him that they've got some plans on Sunday to go fishing, ice fishing, I think. Uh, but Ed has to cancel because turns out that's the day he's getting married. And everyone's like, whoa, married. You're getting married. Congrats. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Shelly, Holling, and Chris are all in this scene with Ed. And they're, uh, you know, surprised, I guess, but but congratulatory. Right. Yeah. They kind of take it at face value. And, you know, maybe they just write it off as a quirk or maybe they're just going along with it. What they're saying, like, oh, yeah, that's to be. That is the tradition in your place. So I'm just going to let it happen right there. And Ed again says that he doesn't really know anything about her. He calls her Debbie something and he's never met her, which raises some alarm bells in the townsfolk right there. Right. Yeah. It's like, you haven't met her yet. I think that's what Chris says. And, uh, no, it, it is interesting that they are like a little concerned and we can actually even see by the end of the scene, like maybe Ed is unsure, you know, that's kind of his vibe this whole episode, but, um, it's, Cool. Kind of like you said, it's like they're still supportive. You know, I guess that is the Sicilian way. It's like, you know, this must be a native thing. Uh, it must be just the way that's like your way of doing it. So I'm not going to question it. Like more power to you. That's that's great. So they're they're supportive, which is nice. But uh, maybe it's uh, still troubling to, to Ed. So that brings us to the next scene, which is where Ed unexpectedly drops in on Joel. Now we haven't talked about what's going on with Joel and his plotline, but needless to say, he's also in a he's in a bit of a pickle himself. He's in a <laughs> uh, very negative mind space right there, where he's dealing with uh, uh, the relationships between man and women, and what exactly is a relationship, and you know that stuff. We'll, we'll touch more on that later. But Ed drops in on him and kind of makes Joel reevaluate 
how he's looking at things because Ed's wanting him to be his chaperone for this marriage, which basically just means like, hey, come along with me as my wingman. Make sure nothing funny goes on when I meet this uh, future wife right here. And, you know, just see how uh, uh, the situation plays out right there. And Joel is on board with that because he likes this ironclad contract that they're going to have. Something that's solidified, something that's solid and has no room for interpretation, nor any room for freedom. Yeah, are you saying that Joel is uh, like like he welcomes these uh, these more um, straightforward traditions because it leaves less room for just the chaotic uh, insanity of of love? You know, I think Joel says uh, women were put on earth to make men crazy. Men were put on earth to not let them make us crazy. I don't, I don't know if that second part makes any sense, but, but Joel, yeah, Joel is being, being driven mad, I guess, by uh, relationship drama. Yeah, I think that Joel, in a sinister way, if you want to look at this, is that he's very frustrated that there could be any uh, freedom for the, the woman to express her own ideals or how she wants to settle the relationship. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that is corresponding exactly with Maggie, because obviously what's going on with Maggie is her own thing. It's a repressive regression thing that's going within her mind. But the way that I'm interpreting this scene is that Joel really likes um, just like one plus one is equal to two. And there's no room for any argument. Which is clearly being reflected with him and Maggie. Because he's saying like, no, we did have something. And Maggie's like, no, we didn't. Which is like cognitive dissonance right there. Yeah, he's a very rational thinker. And cognitive dissonance... True. Yeah. It's like when the facts don't line up, it's very, uh, you know, it can't be anything that's uh, abstract for Joel. And, and obviously in this case, like uh, it, it, it is true, you know, that Joel and Maggie slept together, but it, it is more complicated because, uh, you know, Maggie can't see that truth. She's, she's sort of like, what, what is the word? Uh, repressed that memory. But yeah, I think uh, Joel agrees. He's happy to be the chaperone. We also learn in this scene that uh, you know Joel has been here almost two years. Acor- you know, according to Ed, uh, they've been friends. Like they've they've known each other for almost two years. Uh, two years in June, I think, is what he says. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting to put that into perspective. Yeah, I think it's sweet in way that Ed asks Joel of all the townsfolk in there uh, to be a chaperone. Like he doesn't ask Chris or Holling, people that you normally associate to be really close with. Uh, he asks this, um, you know, like he said, a relatively new person to be someone that he trusts on his judgment. Yeah, that is that is uh, that is striking because. Ed has gone to Chris before for advice and romance. Like I could see that being uh, his chaperone, but maybe Chris is going to be the one because, you know, we do know that Chris is ordained. He answered an ad in the back of a Rolling Stone. So maybe maybe Chris will be officiating the wedding and that's why Ed can't ask him. Uh, But yeah, I think you're right. I don't see him asking uh, Holling or Maurice, even though they're obviously very, very close. Uh, it seems to fit. Yeah, I like this. Joel and Joel and Ed here. That brings us to the next scene where they meet at a neutral location, which is a bingo hall, which I find very funny because bingo is a game of luck, which seems like what they're trying to do right here. They're trying to play a game of luck of marriage to see if they're even compatible in the first place. But <laughs> nice, yeah. again, we also see that the very first thing and seemingly the only thing that they're judging this woman on <laughs> is her physical appearance. They're saying like, oh, you know, she like, she looks okay. 
There's nothing wrong with her. She's not flashy or anything like that, but she seems all right. And uh, one thing that I thought was really gripping on this scene is that Ed, whenever he meets her, he asks her if she's Debbie something. He says, you must be Debbie something. And she accepts it. And a woman's last name is going to be replaced whenever she marries a man. So in a twisted way, this kind of means that like, it doesn't even matter what this woman's identity is before marriage. You can literally just substitute it with the word something. Yeah. And in fact, we don't ever get her last name in this episode, I don't believe. At least she's definitely not credited as a, she's credited as Debbie something. So uh, yeah, I like the, I like this actress. Um, I don't know if she's, she's a native or not. Let me see. Yeah, I'd have to assume she is. Uh, Canadian actress, singer, producer, director. She's also in uh, that movie Smoke Signals, which I actually haven't seen. I've been really wanting to watch it. Uh, she's in Pocahontas as a voice. Nakoma? I actually can't remember. Who's Nakoma in Pocahontas? Uh, I don't know. Let me see. Props to Disney for uh, casting her that in the 90s. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, Nakoma, I think, is like it's the supporting character. It might have been like sister or maybe it's a... It's best friends of Pocahontas. Yeah, no, no, I, I like uh, I like this Debbie something. Uh, sorry, I don't know if I said her name, Michelle St. John, but she kind of reminds me a little bit of Elaine, uh, just sort of like the facial features for some reason, which is, you know, Joel's uh, ex-fiance. Yeah, I agree with you. I think her eyes are the most striking thing and the very first thing that you notice whenever you see her. They're very wide like a rabbit's uh, to take up most of her face. Very curious and inquisitive right there. I think that's also something that's really interesting because later in the episode, we're going to find out that, you know, she has a boyfriend. She's already well into relationships, which I guess for some reason I just didn't see it because I had saw her face first. And I, I don't know if that's like a casting thing, if they wanted to pull that twist so that it can be harder hitting. I don't know why I interpreted it that way. Oh, sorry, I missed it. Are you saying like, um, just like from her look, she doesn't seem to be... That she would have a partner, is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, okay. like for yeah. some reason I interpreted it that way. Yeah, she looks like, you know, she does look uh, plain. You know, she doesn't look like strikingly beautiful. She's not, I don't think she's supposed to be. The character is supposed to look, you know, just sort of very, um, very neutral. And that prompts Joel to say, we were talking about they're, they're judging this woman on her looks. I think Joel even says like, uh, you know, look at her mom. Like sometimes women will turn into their mother and her mom is... <laughs> Not a pretty sight, which is like, come on, Joe. Why, why are you? Why are you like just dogging people by their? <laughs> and it turns out it's not even her. It's not even her mom. That's her aunt. So yeah, uh, there's even like that small little scene in there where Joe is talking with the aunt. Uh, we had talked about it before with the toothbrush scene, but it looks like it's a, like a little aside between the two, so that they can let Ed and Debbie talk right there. Yeah, it's you know it plays off of that sort of a. Uh, Joel is very uncomfortable maybe with um, quiet people or uh, particularly quiet native people. Like if you think about Marilyn, you know, he's always trying to fill the silence. Uh, and that was our little soundbite at the beginning that we played. And the scene ends with them wanting to get her a present because they decided they're going to go out on a date. And Ed says that he's going to get her jewelry, which... I, I know that's also like a physical decoration, but I also can't fault him that much at this scene because, I mean, literally that's all he knows about her is yeah. like her physical appearance. Uh, so yeah, um, they have a date plan. Yeah, they get a date planned and uh, actually don't remember, what did they say they were going to do for the day? Did they just say they're going to meet up or? I think they just say they're going to meet up. Yeah, well, it doesn't really matter because what happens when they do meet up, Ed has brought some flowers. Uh, 
but he's, I guess, going to her house and he walks by a parked car and there's like some commotion going on in the car. Uh, sure enough, Debbie is in the backseat uh, with another man. This is Craig, which she introduces as her boyfriend. It's a, it's a white man, uh, which I bring up because this is going to be, I think, why, uh, or at least, at least why Ed believes why, uh, you know, wh why they're trying to arrange this marriage to separate. Um, I guess uh, Debbie also, you know, says that it's like they they want me not to marry a white man. Right. They don't want to buck tradition, and they yeah. say like you should marry within people of your same skin color. Uh, you had said previously that Ed was bringing uh, a bouquet of flowers. Ed is bringing a bouquet of daisies, which mm. usually represents purity or a return to innocence. And as a gift, daisies usually send a message of faithful, almost childlike love, which fits perfectly with this episode because Ed is just going along with these machinations of the adults, and he's just giving her probably what he's seen in movies. He's just following along with the script. So yeah, I think yeah. it fits perfect that he's giving her daisies. Very nice. That's that's a welcome to the flower shop uh, bit welcome from. Uh, to the flower <laughs> shop. I like. No, I seriously do enjoy this uh, this segment, and that like that really hits it. Yeah, the daisies, the childlike love. Come on, like you know, I keep saying this. Like maybe the the props person wasn't really thinking about that, but you know, some somebody you know, people out there do recognize the the flower language. You know, there is there is a language there, so. It's got to be hey man, death sometimes. of the uh, death of the filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, there is something that I thought again was very telling in the language, where Craig tells Ed that he is getting a good girl. Like yeah. it's a very possessive. Like this is the the noun, the object now. Like you are getting X. In my opinion, very dehumanizing. We'll, we'll see that play out. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like you pointing that out. Um, I would say this might actually be one of my favorite scenes, probably my favorite scene of the episode. I'll, I'll say because uh, I like how it's, you know, this beat would be crushing or, you know, normally it would be like really heartbreaking for like someone in Ed's position or it could, it could be an aggressive scene. You know, it's not an aggressive scene at all. Like there's no uh, hostility between Ed and Craig. And I also, I don't even believe that Ed is even hurt or, or anything like that. I mean, he doesn't even really know Debbie. Uh, he's probably still not even sure why he has to marry her. Like he, he maybe doesn't even know if he wants to. I love that it's just pretty matter of fact. Like we are, we know where, what's happened, like when it happens. And it's, uh, maybe it's a bit of a gut punch, but um, I like that, you know, everyone is kind of on, on this mutual level of understanding and there's no, there's no hard feelings or anything. Right. Ed even suggests that they elope, but yeah. Debbie points out that he doesn't have a car right there. But that the whose reason car, that whose car were they in? Was that just they their were family's in Ed's. car? Um, no, 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 they were in uh, Ed's to get back to their place. They had used Ed's truck. Oh, I mean, like uh, whenever Ed like found them in the backseat of a car. Oh, huh. I guess just like the family's car or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess that one. Yeah, it makes but more yeah. sense. I didn't it, think about that. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail. But yeah, Craig <laughs> no, does not have a car. No. <laughs> No, that's all right. Yeah, this was a very sweet scene, like you said, because this is the one where it reveals that Debbie tells Craig to stick around just in case things don't work out, which is the turning point where Ed's starting to realize, like, oh, these individuals love each other, and I'm actually the third wheel, and I'm intruding upon them. Yeah, it's right like here. it's clear that Debbie, you know, she's going to go along with it. She's happy. She's fine to marry 
Ed, but like maybe there's a chance, you know, that true love will win in the end. And Ed's Ed's stand gonna be standing in the way of that, you know, like kind of what you're saying. Uh and that's, you know, that's the love that Ed knows and that's what he believes in, you know, from movies. Uh, and, and he's going to be kind of the, he's going to be the obstacle here. So he, he really doesn't, I guess he's got a lot of incentive not to <laughs> get married to Debbie at this point. Uh, I, I think it's cool. The scene is set in a garage. It's, it says it's Leo's garage. Apparently Ed says Leo lets him store some of his camera equipment in here, um, or used to, but, uh, like a garage set. Yeah. There's also like a very small scene in the garage set where Craig is messing around with some of Ed's cameras and he almost drops one of them and Debbie kind of reprimands him, but she reprimands him in a way that's very familiar with people that have been in a relationship or seen relationships close up where like she knows who this person is. She can just yell at him right there <laughs> with like no hurt feelings because she understands who he is on a deeper level. So I think that was like a very telling scene in just like such few words of dialogue. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I remember that little, um, exchange, you know, she says like, he's so clumsy or something, but it shows like how well she knows him and how much they've, you know, she can, she can get, you know, a, a little, uh, reprimanding of him, but, uh, it's, of course there's no hard feelings or anything. There's no, like, it's no, no bitterness. Yeah. That, that's a good thing. That's good to point out. So the next scene is in Ed's apartment, his house, his shack, whatever you like to call it. Uh, and you know what's funny about this scene is Ed enters his his little room and Joel's chilling there. He's just hanging out in there, which is interesting because normally Joel is uh, interrupted by Ed. Like Joel will be in a scene and then Ed will come in without announcement. But uh, it's the opposite here. And I don't think we ever get a reason why Joel is even here. I guess it's for the chaperoning business or whatever, but Joel's just there for no reason. There's not like a deleted scene to explain why Joel is there. Whatever. I like that they have a scene together. Um, Ed, <laughs> Ed has been refurnishing his place, he says. He's kind of like rearranged some stuff. He went to the store, I guess, to pick up some things. And uh, we get this nice little scene. Yeah, I thought it was, I don't know if, if uh, I'm misinterpreting this uh, scene from a shot cinematography standpoint, but it looks like that there's a lot of leading lines into Joel when he's at the corner. Mm -hmm. And he's able to be in this new location because Ed is rearranging the room, like you had said previously. But the bed frame is leading to Joel, and there's also the window bars are going down against it. So your eyes – so in my perspective, I think your eyes are being trained to look at Joel in the corner, even though he's in the background and Ed is in the foreground. Yeah, that's a very dynamic composition. You can see like the depth there with the sort of the vanishing points, the lines that all point to that corner that Joel is sort of sitting in. He's very small in the frame at first, so – Maybe the reasoning for, you know, the these leading lines is to draw your eye there, as you say, because uh, otherwise he might he might not be uh, immediately noticeable. He does have a line, so of course you notice him when he speaks. Uh, he's also being lit uh, through the window, so he's got some nice light on him. So he's not just like in the shadows. He's not lost uh, in the frame. You know, it's it's he's definitely noticeable. Well, in this scene, Ed is, again, like he's just returning from the store. He's got some new things and he's uh, decorating his apartment in a new way. He's setting it up. Uh, I can't remember if it's in this scene or later, but he's setting it up for like two dressers. You know, he wants to move the bed to where Debbie will, you know, get a better position for like the morning light coming in or something. 
uh, things of this nature. It's it's nice. Joel is kind of walking around. I like that Joel is just kind of like walking around, hanging out, talking. He picks up like a strip of 16 millimeter film. He's like looking through it. I, I'm really curious to know like what's what's on that, but it's not part of the scene really. It's just like a little bit of a set dressing that Joel can play with. Um, but I do have a soundbite from this uh, this scene we can play right here. Look, how do you feel about her? Is this someone that you think you can spend your life with? How can I know, Dr. Fleischman, unless I've tried? That's a good point. People don't want to make a commitment until they're sure about someone, but how can you be sure about someone until you've made a commitment? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's just all a crapshoot. Well, surely that problem would be avoided if they started out as friends first, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could, you could uh, know how it will go, I guess. But, but I mean, there's there's something there. You know, it's like uh, being friends and being married is a lot different. Like, of course, you might know you might really like someone as a friend, but how would you know how marriage will work? I guess you'll have you'll definitely have a better idea if you're friends first obviously. Mm. So it's not an arranged marriage, but just the whole idea of this commitment and, uh, uh, about, you know, committing, uh, to marriage and things like that. Like that's the whole, uh, you know, universal, like the idea of cold feet. It's like, how do you know, how can you agree to something that is forever? If, uh, you never try it, you know, you, you can't try it out, you know, so. Right, right. I also think that this is the scene where Joel starts to turn his viewpoint around and that he's starting to realize like, oh, maybe like this very strict interpretation of this uh, old tradition is actually very wrong uh, or outdated. And I actually think that what you were talking about previously with the film strip that he's playing with, I think that maybe that has some metaphorical reasoning behind it because that is a movie like that he's playing yeah, with. Yeah. That is a set thing right there. And in that scene, he's talking about how like maybe I need to reassess this whole like man woman propagating the species thing. Like we need to go back and think back on it. And it's kind of like saying like maybe things aren't you know directly neatly cut and edited and put into a movie. Maybe it's much more wider than that. Yeah. And and the you know if he's looking at a finished cut of film or if he's just looking at uh, a random take a film that's like not edited in to the finished product. You know, that's another, it's just like components that are strewn about. Like oh. We need to got to weigh this all and, and figure out how it all fits together, how it makes sense. Nice. No, that's really good. I like it. So that brings us to the climax scene for Ed, which is where he goes back into the sauna to meet with the council so that he can kind of tell them his decision on this. I thought this scene was really interesting uh, in a thematic way because He's meeting them in a sauna, which is a man-made structure. It's created by man. It's not natural. And it's in a tight, small room with well-defined angles in which everything can be clearly placed out. Like, you see where the corners are. You see where the wall is. There is no room for interpretation right there. And it's also a place where you can sweat things out. Yeah. I would say uh, the the metaphor, you know, like, uh, there's definitely haze that could that you could say obscures vision, but no, I think the metaphor of sweating things out that is very super clear here uh, and very applicable to the contents of this scene. I love that Ed uh, uh, references a movie and, and a movie that I love, uh, Arthur, the movie Arthur, in which uh, this sort of like drunk uh, millionaire, he's like the son of a in a rich family, uh, is to be wed to be married to. Uh, you know, uh, the daughter of another wealthy family. 
but he instead falls in love with Liza Minnelli. It's a lot like that. But, uh, you know, actually, Uncle Anku has some friends there in the sweat lodge as well. And he says, uh, one of his friends says, uh, Arthur is, that, that's a whole different situation because uh, in that movie, the woman that Arthur was arranged to marry, uh, she was stuck up. Like, we didn't like her anyway. Like, of course you don't want. But uh, in this case, you know, you've got this wonderful native woman, Debbie. Debbie something, I guess. But uh, but no, no, don't they recommend, um, maybe you might know about a little more about this, South Pacific. Are you familiar with that musical? Uh, I have never seen it. It's one of the few that I have not seen. I just know that it is one of the nine musicals that has won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. It's written and composed by Rod- Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. Mm, yeah, and I, I haven't seen it either, but uh, I understand it's fantastic. And of course, I guess it applies better in this situation. I forget why uh, Anku's friend mentions this. But he says it's more like it's more like South Pacific, and they 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 have an extended dialogue where they talk about the plot of South Pacific, uh, so <laughs> fits in. And the scene ends with him trying to tell Ed, uh, Uncle Anku, he's saying like, you know, I know you're feeling very conflicted about this, but it was only a suggestion, Ed. I wasn't really telling you to do it. I was only giving you some uh, food for thought. Do you think Anku is uh, free of blame here? I mean, I think he was suggesting it kind of hard, but. And, we, and we, we, we found him out. We've realized that he, he wants Ed to get married to Debbie so that she can't marry Craig. Or, or is, that, is that not Anku stealing? It's more of Debbie's family? Uh, it's, it's hard to place you know, the blame. I, it's really hard to see what his motivation is because I had rewatched those scenes again. And in the beginning, Uncle Anku does kind of have some solid advice. He's saying like, you know, you need like a, what was it? Like a willing heart and an open mind. Yeah. That's yeah, like what you I don't, need I don't know if I got, a, a I don't know if I got those two mixed up right there, right there. My, <laughs> oh, one, one of the of words you. might be, yeah. yeah. But you got to have two of those positive qualities right there, <laughs> which is right. Like he, he is right on that. And maybe he's just trying to parlay that into being like, Ed, if you want to pursue this, here's my advice. You don't have to do it. But like you said, like there is what can be thought of as a ulterior motive. Like he just wants to make sure to people marry within their own races. You know, I gotta, I gotta step back. I, I love Uncle Anku. I can't paint him to be the the villain, but if he was, it would be so sinister because he's completely without without blame or fault here. He's positioned himself in such a way where he can't take. You know, he never really, uh, he didn't really like say do this or do that. He's like indirectly pressuring. Uh, but no, of course, you know, I, I love Uncle Anku. I think he's. I think you're right. I think he's just at the end of the day wants to give some great advice to Ed. And it just so happens that the family of Debbie something maybe approached Anku for his help and he was just trying to be helpful, you know? Okay. Uh, that's the end of Ed's plot line, right? Uh, there is one no, no, final no. scene yeah, with yeah. them. Yeah, go ahead. But it goes along with Joel right here. And do you want to talk about that or do you want to talk about Joel's scene first before we can all tie it, both of our storylines together? I think that this is... Uh, it doesn't really pertain too much with what Joel is going on with Maggie right now. Maybe it does, but uh, I think I think we could wrap it up here, or, or does it? Uh, not really, in my opinion. I, I I guess you could interpret it that way. But yeah, let's just steam forward with it and you know talk about the very last scene in the episode. So in this one, this is where Ed and Joel are back in his room. I think they've rearranged the room back to what it was beforehand. And there is a line in there that I thought was really interesting. It says, everything's back the way it was, said Ed. 
which is going back to that original line from Joel, which is where he wants there to be the status quo. He doesn't want things to change. But I think there's an argument to be made that there is, it isn't back the way it is because this is where Ed gives Joel a friendship bracelet as a gift. And it's kind of, in my opinion, trying to say like, hey, thanks for being my chaperone. I'm glad we took this step together. Uh, maybe this is a more appropriate thing in my life to be doing right now where I need to take things at an individual level and at like a step-by-step basis. So why don't we start off with friendship and then we'll move on to romance and then we'll move on to marriage. Oh, with with Joel or are you just yeah, saying? Yeah, with, with, with yeah. like in his yeah. stage of life. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, in his like, yeah, in his... Uh his in his walks of life. Yeah. It's a it's a great touching scene. Of course, you know, when we open this plot line with the fact that Ed has like known Joel for two years and uh, they count each other as friends. And uh Joel really I think Joel really does enjoy this bracelet. Uh, I guess it was originally meant for Debbie, but Ed wanted to give it to Joel and he, you know Joel's like, no, like He's assuming it's jewelry, right? You know, he's like, you you know, you can just return it. And Ed says, Of course I know that. I, I just thought it made sense for me to give it to you. And it's a wonderful present and a, a wonderful Oh, ending. wait. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, what you just said there. It, it's meant for Debbie, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, so he wanted to start off there you by, go. like, yeah. going back to the beginning and just being a friendship with Debbie. Yeah, he was like, okay. that. to him, that would have been his logical step. It's like, I know we're supposed to be married on Sunday, but maybe we can start by being friends. That's, that's interesting. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful ending to an episode. Uh, Ed suggests a cup of tea. Joel agrees. And, uh, you know, maybe we can watch a movie later. Joel gets really excited, starts looking through Ed's tapes. I think first he sees Taxi Driver. I guess it's a New York thing. Uh, but Joel says, no, Ed says, it's kind of depressing. What about The Sting? Newman and Redford together again. So, you know, these classic movie duo, uh, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, hitting it off again. It's a perfect, like, friendship movie, maybe. You know, that's a great correlation to Joel and Ed, you know, being a, a duo. Right. It's a very neat bow to wrap the episode around with. Nice. Well, Charles, let's wind it back to the beginning and uh, your choice. Where do we go next? Let's talk about Joel and Maggie right here. Cool. And we can drop us off right in Ruth Ann's store, which is where Joel is kind of griping to Ruth Ann and saying like, I can't believe that Maggie doesn't remember any of this. Like, we were together in the biblical sense, and that she should be, like, you know, at least a little bit more understanding of my situation. And this is where Ruthann kind of points out to him, at least in Ruthann's viewpoint, she says, like, you know, Joel, it's not the same between you two. With you, you, you it's just like, I, I just had sex with this individual, and that's it. With Maggie, the rest of the townsfolk now have a certain perception on her that's not going to go away because it's already been decided upon. Um, and the way I interpreted this scene was that like, it's kind of like a societal pressure right here. Whereas like the man gets off much more easier than the woman in terms of, um, what, what is a like lasciviousness? Yeah, I guess that's, yeah, <laughs> guess that's like a word we could be gone or, with right I guess there. is what you could say, you know, like yeah. or man whorishness, <laughs> that, that kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a theme that we're going on here in the episode of uh, women losing control. Because I, I had said previously, like, Ed's wife-to-be, mm-hmm. would have been-to-be, doesn't, like, <laughs> doesn't seem like she had a lot of choice in being married. And Maggie doesn't have a lot of choice on how the townsfolk are perceiving her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely an unweighted, uh, unbalanced uh, situation here. And not that it should be that way, but that's, I guess, the societal, 
like how it's going on in the nineties, at least, uh, and maybe still today sometimes, you know, but, uh, <laughs> that's quite ruthless that, uh, Ruthann, <laughs> she says to Joel, uh, this is regarding Maggie. She's probably trying to put the whole thing behind her. Maggie has to live with the consequences. It's something that she undoubtedly and deeply regrets. <laughs> Just like, she's like really laying into Joel here, but, uh, I think she's hundred percent accurate, right? It, it is something that we learn that, you know, Maggie is subconsciously trying to put behind her. You know, she's, she didn't consciously decide this, but she, uh, her psyche just buried this, this memory. Yeah. And we're at this point in the story, we're not too sure whether her psyche is doing this because of what other individuals are telling her to do and behave, or if it's because of her own will that she wants to bury this memory. Interesting. Yeah. We will see how this develops. Uh, the next time we see Joel, well, he he's like in his office, uh, sitting beside Marilyn and he's looking out of his office window and he sees uh, Maggie chatting with Mike Monroe across the street. He, he refers to Mike as another victim for Maggie. Uh, and he's so fed up that he can, he sees this happening that she's just, I guess to, to, to Joel's perspective, he's just, uh, Maggie's just uh, toying with Mike's emotions or, or something like that. Uh, effect. Joel storms out of his office and goes to confront Maggie. We do see a dog. We got some dog watch. Uh, there's a dog <laughs> pulling a man on skis. That's impressive uh, dog work there. This dog is like dog sledding essentially, but there's just one dog, one person on skis. Yeah, this is a this is a scene where I said at the top of the episode where Joel's trying to have his cake and eat it too because when he's muttering to himself in, in his office, he's saying like, how can she not acknowledge me? Like just some sort of tip of the hat. But he had also said that he wanted things to return back to the status quo. He wanted things to return back to normalcy. So he's trying to have it both ways right here. Uh, a neat thing in this scene, though, is that whenever he goes out and argues with Maggie, they're arguing in front of a like very bright red truck right there. Mm. It's in the background, and it takes up a lot of the shot, and that brings up a lot of imagery of uh, passion. Yeah, red is a very, uh, yeah, definitely the color of passion. Yeah, I didn't really notice a, a lot of color symbolism here, but I think that's uh, very fitting. I, I noticed uh, some words here. Uh, peccadillos is a word that... Uh, that Joel uses, which I yeah. definitely had to look up. Go ahead. <laughs> I wasn't a fan of that one because there was too many, uh, me I don't know if metaphor is the right word or if just like a, a roundabout way of describing a penis. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you but go. like they used it back to back <laughs> yeah. in a sentence and I felt like it was them trying to be cute. You know, it was actually, I, I don't know. I felt like they didn't need that. Like you don't need two of those back to back. I don't know what the other one was, but he, I also wrote down uh, the town pump. He refers to uh, that was pretty offensive uh, in, in a yeah. number of ways. Maybe they don't even realize, but uh, and then uh, Kilroy was here. I think that's a reference to that, like World War II graffiti. And I, I can't actually remember what the context was, but probably something like uh, leaving a mark on Maggie, or maybe just saying like. Uh, you know, this actually happened, you know, like writing this down. Like I was, this was, this is a thing you can't avoid. Uh, right. I can't remember actually what that context was for that, but I had that written down. The scene ends with Joel telling Maggie that she is not Dorothy. He is not Toto and they can't just click their heels and disappear off into the Wizard of Oz world. I thought that this metaphor was really interesting to use because oftentimes, well, if you excuse me, I'm going to use a little bit of a... Is it Jungian or is it Jungian analysis? Uh, 
Jungian. I think you could say Jungian? either. Jungian, Jungian. I think you could say Jungian. Either. Yeah, yeah maybe Jungian. Yeah, called Jung. I'm very confused about that word. I'm going to use a little bit of Jungian analysis throughout this entire episode. I'll touch more on um, a different aspect of it later. But on this one, I wanted to talk about how people kind of retreat to a childlike wonder whenever they're facing inner conflict or something that they cannot resolve. So in Jungian analysis, uh, one of the things about it is that there's 12 archetypes, which are kind of like universal mythic characters that reside within our collective unconscious right there. And he believes that each one of us tend to have one dominant archetype that dominates our personality. Now, of the 12 right there, you have the ruler, the creator, the sage, the innocent, the explorer, the rebel, the hero, the wizard, the jester, the everyman, the lover, and the caregiver right here. Conveniently, Wizard of Oz does use a lot of Jungian analysis right here. Toto, who Joel is comparing himself to, is the archetype of the trickster slash jester. It's a person that wants to live in the moment and whose goal is to shake up the world. It's to brighten it up. Uh, coincidentally, Toto is the one that actually brings up a lot of the plot in The Wizard of Oz. He is the reason that Dorothy gets herself into a lot of situations, and it's because of Toto. The character of Dorothy is usually the archetype of innocent, which is usually people that want to desire to be happy and their greatest fear is to be punished for doing the wrong thing. They want to remain in a state of inaction, I guess is a okay. word that I can use right here. And I thought it was really interesting to even use the Wizard of Oz in the first place right here. I don't know if they were consciously knowing of the Jungian analysis that could be found in Wizard of Oz, but that's, I mean, that is our thing. We like to overanalyze, and that's where I want to put us off on. Yeah. And I think the whole deal with the Jungian archetypes and these symbols is that it is sort of a universally unconscious, uh, like it's something that appears in all uh, cultures and all stories, you know, in a way. So it might be a thing that you might not even be consciously thinking about, but it appears uh, with this Wizard of Oz. Uh, but also, I think the writers of the show are big Carl Jung fans, so they probably, you know, are aware of that a, a little more than than maybe another show. But yeah, that's I like that a lot. One thing I thought that was really cool about this episode, um, you know, we it, it follows the previous episode. It's like, okay, the big thing happened. They did it. Joel and Maggie uh, had sex. So how do you resolve that in the following episode? I guess any show would do this, but I think it's, uh, or maybe a lot of shows would do the same thing, but I think it's a uh, very Northern exposure uh, this, the, the conflict here is very existential. It's like, okay, the, the last episode is Joel and Maggie had sex. This episode is how do you live with that? Like, how do you live with the fact that you, uh, you know, broke this sexual tension and, and it happened? Um, so, cause, cause there's a lot of, um, you know, putting that perspective on, on, uh, how it's shaping these, these characters specifically like their psyche. You know. Yeah, that's a very good observation right there. I, I like that interpretation of what you're saying. Like, like what's what's going on within themselves, and how can we settle this out, both on like the surface level and the subconscious, and then below the subconscious, yeah, uh, level right there in the three levels. Yeah, definitely dives into that the, the mental aspect too, not just the lots of different. It's like lots of layers. We're brought to the next scene, which is where we get a shot of Mike's very uh, 
clean geodesic dome. Like the outside of it is very structured right there. And I don't think it's structured in a manner of like what Ed's structure means, like of his traditional, very rigid structure. This one is more of like a mental structure, in my opinion. I'll I'll elaborate more on that later. But in this scene, they're having dinner, Mike and Maggie right there. But in this scene, Mike kind of grows out of his character. And what I mean by that is that Mike is usually incredibly careful. He is afraid to go beyond the boundary. He doesn't want to experiment. He's very safe. You know, he checks everything to make sure that his body can digest it, uh, whether or not it's an actual thing, you know, his body can or cannot do. And he goes out of his comfort zone, and that's what triggers something deep within Maggie, which makes her see Joel instead. Yeah, so... Cooking with Mike, uh, he's taking these risks. Uh, he even says sometimes you got to take risks because he's uh, he's going wild with the garlic press, and Maggie has to call him out for that. And yeah, it, it does trigger something within Maggie. I never thought about it like that, but yeah, that could be like the trigger because what happens with Maggie is she, uh, you know, she like looks up, and all of a sudden it's not Mike in the kitchen with her; it's Joel. And he's shirtless. And in fact, we get a shot with Joel uh, where he's like standing behind a potted plant. So he's like completely nude, but of course he's covered by this plant. So Maggie is like obviously talking to Mike, but she keeps seeing Joel uh, in a very uh, sexualized way, perhaps, you know? Yeah, it's even like, I guess you could even stretch it a little bit and say that the thing that Mike feeds her is kind of phallic yeah. in um, in. <laughs> It's like in a looks. It's a breadstick, right? Is that what that is? I think so. I I I, I thought it looked like pocky. You yeah, know, like it's, that it's very much a pocky like, type breadstick. It's like not a Pizza Hut breadstick, but more of like a crunchy breadstick. And it's a it's tapenade, uh, that homemade tapenade that Mike made. By the way, Mike rattles off the ingredients in this scene, and I was just thinking. Where was this recipe in the uh, Northern Exposure Cookbook? Uh, we just did a bonus episode on our Patreon about the Northern Exposure Cookbook. Uh, but I guess they don't need to include it in the cookbook because he already tells you how to make it in the episode. So you could just watch yeah. the episode. But uh, they, they give you a freebie right here. But yeah. we are going to, yeah, you know, of course, plug our thing in. We got a Patreon. <laughs> if you didn't know about it, you can subscribe to it. Northern Overexposure Patreon at, uh, Northern Overexposure Patreon at gmail.com. Uh, Wait, no. <laughs> Wait, that's not it. Wait, what is it? <laughs> uh, it's patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. But of course, you could also write to us at our Gmail, which was uh, northern overexposure podcast at gmail.com. There uh, we go. <laughs> Lee picking up my mistakes. <laughs> oh, we got it. No, you had the right instinct for the plug. Uh, I, uh, what, uh, one other thing I wanted to say uh, about this scene is Mike keeps uh, saying uh, he's making this dish, Aricot de Provence. And of course, I don't have a great French accent, but I think Mike maybe might even have an even worse accent. But he keeps saying that. Uh, he keeps saying that dish <laughs> name. I think it's funny though. He's really enjoying it. So, uh, yeah. So immediately we follow that scene right up with Maggie just barging into Joel. I like what Joel says. He's like, "Yeah, the door's just a formality at this point. <laughs> like you can just anybody can just come in and barge in." Yeah, and. That is where Maggie realizes that, like, oh, like, the thing that I've been repressing is real. Like, we actually did have sex right there. Yeah, she says, you know, she realized it actually happened. Uh, She 
explains that it's like this uh, traumatic memory loss thing. Like in, in eighth grade, she had uh, broken her leg and she completely blacked out that fact because maybe it was so painful. She, you know, of course she had a cast on. So like she knew that her leg was broken, but she just like, uh, you know, couldn't really remember how exactly, like she didn't have a clear memory of how it happened. Yeah, there's a the very ending dialogue in that is that Joel saying like, you know, we told everyone at the brick and you kind of <laughs> blacked it out, but you didn't want people talking behind your back. Maggie is very concerned about what other people are dictating what her behavior should be. Yeah, this is very true. By the end of this episode, Maggie really has to dive into her own thoughts and her own feelings about like, what what do I need in a relationship? Like, what is important for me? Uh, because she eventually, like, she's going to weigh Mike versus Joel, right? They're going to have, like, a sort of a, well, we'll get there, I guess. But uh, maybe what I could say at least is that, you know, the reasoning for why this becomes repressed is, as you're saying, it's more of, like, her concern for what other people would think. And uh, I don't know if necessarily that changes her feelings by the end of the episode, but she does have to, uh, you know, really bring it up to herself. It's like, what why is it Mike? Why is it Joel? Like, why do I, why do I have feelings for both or for one of them? Uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get into it. It's pretty complex. So this next scene, um, is pretty quick. Like Maggie goes back to Mike and has to explain like why she left so quickly. Apparently she left dinner. Uh, and she, she just explains to him, you know, that she had sex with Joel I have a note about this scene. I think it's a pretty bad scene because uh, it serves purely just to dish out information to Mike. Nothing really changes. We don't even fully understand how Mike reacts. Like, uh, I wish we had seen a little bit more of what Mike is going through when he hears this, but he doesn't really get to put in a word edgewise. Uh, and the scene ends before we can really sit with him. So it feels like they had to inject this scene just to keep the story moving on its track. I think it could have been handled in a better way, but I guess you got to get it in somehow. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe was there something you got from this scene? No, no, no. I completely agree with you right there. And even just the dialogue itself wasn't like super great because it had that, like that, um, it was, uh, the classic comedic bit yeah. where you're going <laughs> yeah. to say, uh, a list of things, and you're gonna try to hide it on the the, yes. the, the squeeze the, in the, the, the penultimate beat. Yeah. yeah, the very the second to last thing you're gonna try to hide whatever important detail is. The other character, the straight man, is gonna say like, uh, "I'm sorry, what?" And then you're gonna reply <laughs> back with the last thing, and then he's gonna be like, "No, no, no, no. what was like? Ob you know what I'm talking about?" Like, <laughs> yeah. In this, are, uh, <laughs> in this scene, she says, uh, "You know, a lot of things happened when you were." Uh, gone, Mike, because I think Mike huddled inside during the uh, the last episode, the ill wind, because uh, I guess his allergies, he didn't want to go out there. She said, a lot of things happened. Uh, Maurice almost fell off the roof of the brick. Al Simmons' barn blew off. I had sex with Dr. Fleischman and a whole herd of sheep went through Sicily. So that, that's the joke you're explaining there, the penultimate right. beat. <laughs> and... Yeah, like you said, that it goes through that classic trope of being like, oh, I don't, you know what? Explaining it would make it worse. I'm just going to leave. It's like, how? How would explain, <laughs> like, in what? And like, Tell me in which way communication doesn't make things better. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm not even the biggest fan of Mike. Like, like I said, like, I like him more maybe now. But uh, I know a lot of people don't like Mike at all. 
I feel like the writers don't even care about Mike in this scene. It's like they don't even give him a chance to we see what he's doing. Like, come on. Like, if if you're the show and you gave us Mike and now you don't really care to even have him participate in the scene, really. Uh, yeah, I'm just upset with this scene. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all about Maggie at this point. Like, Mike is just uh, a set piece. He's dressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well God, it's yeah. fine. The, the episode does pick up, too. It, it's not. Yeah. It's just a, it's just an odd scene to happen. A necessary scene, so, maybe. But sorry, go ahead. That's gonna bring us on to the next scene, which is where Maggie is at the brick and she meets with Shelly, and she's telling her like, oh, "I can't believe that this happened. I, I I can't believe I slept with Fleischman. He is the antithesis of what I am. He represents everything I despise in a man, but he's also like maybe in some dark." perverted chamber of my soul like i actually like him because the sex with him was phenomenal like i really enjoyed it right there and then shelly says like well what about mike and then maggie says like well he's like you know he's great he's kind he's safe and that's like the word that trips her up right there and this is where i want to introduce like another uh, concept of uh, some surface level pop psychology from freud and carl jung so according to Jung, there is three things that can represent you. There is the ID, the ego, and the super ego right here. Yeah, the uh, id, id, ego, super ego. Yeah. The, um, I remember those, and I can't actually, uh, maybe you can give us a refresher course. What does each represent? Yeah, so to Maggie, Joel represents id. It's the raw, instinctual, impulsive part of us that does things for instant self-gratification. It's very primal, the key words being instinct, and Maggie describes Joel in such a manner saying like, you know, it's like like a dark, primitive part of my brain really likes him. Mike, to Maggie, is super ego. It is the critical and moral facility. It attempts to keep the psyche in complete, perfect alignment with societal norms and directly blocks the AIDS desires in a way that is socially correct. So Mike, again, is the safe choice. He is the one that society would dictate to Maggie to be with. And Maggie is ego. She is the mediator between the conflict between the id, primal behavior, with the superego, lawful morality. So it attempts to fulfill the id's desires in a way that is socially correct. And this is the important thing. When either the id or the superego oversteps their boundaries with the ego a person undergoes a type of suffering due to inner conflict and inability for the person to find a way to regain control. When the psyche is under duress or conflict but cannot overcome the issues, it resorts to falling back on measures to lessen or redirect the ongoing conflict. Freud believes that when the ego cannot adequately mediate between the id and superego, the psyche resorts to these mechanisms. And there's a whole lot of them right there. But the one that Maggie falls back on is regression or repression. It could be either one of those two. Regression is the psyche reverting back to a simpler or previous state before the stressful event or conflict happened. Repression is pushing it so, so far back down into your brain that you just can't remember it. Now, I say all of these because I think they're very useful ways to analyze the three characters of Joel, Maggie, and Mike. As we remember, Maggie is only tripped up with her memories of Joel because Mike oversteps his boundaries and tries to be like Joel. He wants to be more risky. He wants to go be more daring. And that yeah. is what makes Maggie remember about Joel. 
Now, again, I, I say this with like as many disclaimers as I can. This is a very surface level psychology thing. <laughs> Armchair right psychology, but I think yes. it totally applies. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the writers are thinking this as well. Sorry, I kind of cut you off, but uh, maybe I'm on the same track here. Uh, yeah, I, that's that's a great representation of each character with this um, these distinctions. You know, I guess we'll get to it whenever we get to Maggie, like what ultimately happens whenever she's weighing Joel against Mike later. But uh, just thinking about that, uh, id, ego, superego, uh, I think for better or for worse, Maggie is a very, um, well, I wouldn't say like irrational, that's not the right, but she's a very... Um, like she she uh, goes with her gut a lot. She like she's kind of uh, more more based on feeling, you know. Uh, so that would make a lot of sense to why Maggie always finds herself with Joel if she is like id for you know this sort of primal feeling, um, you know. Because I think uh, you know we might think we are civilized human beings. Uh, we can think through things, but at the end of the day, uh, also you know there's. A lot of people who will say, trust your gut, you know, or there's a lot of reasoning for why we have these impulses uh, that um, we shouldn't write off either, you know, as base or even though we describe it as primal feelings, you know, this sort of primal urge and uh, uh, what's the word? Like lust, I guess, that Maggie might feel for Joel. Um, at the end of the day, maybe it's just like that is her connecting with her feelings, you know? Right. And I think that you're completely right that it's trying to connect with the feelings and that there's nothing wrong with it. I, I actually find it very frustrating whenever people say, like, feelings aren't logical. They're <laughs> completely logical. What are you talking about? Like, if I went outside and someone punched me, your right feeling would be to feel anger. Like, that's the correct <laughs> response. Now, how you deal with that anger, that's, like, you know, what we should be talking about. Like, is it right for you to punch the guy back? Should you try to resolve the issue? Blah, 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 blah. But, like, I don't like how people are like, yeah, you shouldn't be feeling that way. It's like, what? No. Like, <laughs> it's completely logical, man. Nice. Well, yeah. Well, hey, I love that uh, that dive into a little bit of psychology there. Um, maybe we could continue to apply it in our next scene. Uh, well, my, wait, hang on. Oh, okay, go ahead. There go is ahead. One, one small little thing in the scene that I thought was really interesting was that Shelly was trying to relate her own experiences to Maggie, and she was saying, like, there was um, yeah, of the 4-H club president. <laughs> she liked him a lot because of the sex that they were having. Like, that was the thing that thrilled her and satisfied her. And she says, my reputation took a major nosedive, but I couldn't help it. And then Maggie says, what happened to him? Wayne beat him up. And it's to and fro, I find. Like, it's nice that she went beyond what she thought other people should be thinking of her. She was saying, like, you know, my reputation, what people said behind me, they were terrible. But I didn't care. I wanted to have what I wanted. But again, it's also like it went back into that trope of, like, a man possessing another woman. Oh, because like of Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. Wayne is the one uh, that is in charge of the relationship though you could also argue on if they were already in a relationship then you could argue that like wayne was frustrated with that so i, I don't want to have to like get too much into it yeah and maybe like her choosing wayne like maybe she chose wayne as well and like part of that means that he's going to he's going to be like that maybe that's at one point in her life what she wanted or what she thought she wanted uh for whatever reason that's the that was the transition wayne beat up uh this 4-h president i guess this was high school i think yeah um, but okay, uh, the, the next time, the next little entry in this plot line is that, uh, Mike comes to see Joel 
And uh, Joel is like, wait, what's going on? Uh, I didn't, Mike says, you wanted to see me? No. Uh, Maggie shows up. So she's got, she's arranged it for them all to be here together so they can talk it over. And uh, what happens in this scene? Yeah, so it's a parent trap scene. She uh, traps them <laughs> right there under false pretenses right here. Um, and Maggie goes and tells Joel, it's like, you know, like my attraction to you, you know, it, it's like, uh, like an animal. It's like our glands are talking, not our head, not our hearts. You know, it's a biological thing. And Mike almost leaves the room because, you know, it's very uncomfortable <laughs> right there. And then Maggie kind of holds him back and it's like, no, but like, Mike, you're a wonderful, brave, courageous person, but we could never have sex. And that's the... <laughs> Mike's like, wait, why? <laughs> yeah, because Mike, you know, in Maggie's own words, she thinks that like Mike would like blow up or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she does have the curse, which is another reminder that... So basically, uh, everyone that Maggie has slept with, all of her ex-boyfriends and, and such, have all died in some... Uh, I wouldn't say freak accident, but in some cases, yeah. Like in just unexplainable ways, her partners uh, always tend to die. And so if she were to have sex with Mike, uh, Mike would die. Uh, and, you know, this has been addressed before, and I think it's been handled pretty uh, – I really liked it when Mike was like – you know, he, he's – as you said, Mike is the character who is – you know, his his whole description is just being, like, afraid of everything. He lives in a bubble. But uh, and, and when it comes to love, when it comes to Maggie, he's kind of the bravest man. You know, he's like, I, I'm not afraid of that. Like, whatever. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not afraid of dying or whatever. It's not, it's not going to happen. But um, sorry, this this also uh, reminds us that I guess Joel is going to die now. Like Joel's going to blow up because Joel <laughs> – and Joel says, uh, you know, what, what's the deal? Like I'm expendable but Mike's not? Like you'd sleep with me to kill me and not kill Mike? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think that this scene – has any resolution, right? Am I correct in that, yeah, in that, that assumption? That is a good point. Yeah, because in the end, it's like almost like, you know, who is she going to choose? Uh, she says she's in love with Mike, but uh, but she's not going to act on that. So in the end, uh, she's like her own woman. You know, she's not in a relationship with anybody, uh, which is fine, which is great. But uh, I, guess, I guess we'll still have this continual... Uh, love triangle at this point in season four with Mike, Joel, and Maggie. There, there's always going to be sexual tension, I guess. Right. Yeah, that is a good observation you just said right here. Like, Maggie is choosing her own fate, quote-unquote. Like, she's able to decide for herself, which makes her independent. Uh, I would also say that it returns things back to the status quo, because now we're back to where we would be two episodes ago. All right, let's switch gears to the final plotline, which is going to be between Holling and Ruthann. Yeah, I, I really like how this plotline begins here. And uh, I was kind of gearing up for uh, an exciting uh, plotline here. But without spoiling too much of it, uh, I'll point out something that, uh, that Janice Cycle mentioned to us in that, that email from like a year ago. And something that you also picked up on, you said, Charles. Um, but that this plotline in this episode with, uh, with Holling and Ruthann it seems to have uh, very little uh, resolution or plot or, or not a whole lot is happening. Let's see. Janice Cycle says, it's it's like the most ambient Zen subplot in Northern Exposure. And I do personally love it. But I've always wondered if it was an error in production that resulted in no story. Also, the deleted scenes don't add any additional story. I guess by story, uh, they mean, you know, like not a whole lot comes of this plot line. Uh, it just seems uh, 
well, let's let's kind of walk through it because you know a lot does happen, but let's walk through it and uh, kind of touch on different things. And I, I believe Charles, you might have a uh, you might have some answers or some ideas of like how this might fit into a bigger picture. But how it starts is uh, again, I really love this opening because uh, uh, a new character is introduced. Uh, this trapper named Walt comes into the brick and uh, talks about how he's been trapping out. Uh, some particular uh, landmark or out somewhere. And uh, he talks about like the birds that he's been seeing. And obviously Holling takes interest of this. He seems to know birds. He knows bird calls. And Walt is describing what he's seeing. And um, I think Holling is saying, no, like that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, you know, uh, I think he says something like, you know, it may be called like the gray capped, chickadee or something, but it's actually, you know, it's not really gray or something. And, and Walt says, no, 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 I, I can see, like, I, I can see like what colors are. And this interests Holling because it must mean that Walt has seen maybe an anomaly or some sort of bird that, that Holling recognizes because uh, Holling feeds him some bird calls and Walt is able to say, yeah, it sounded like that. And Holling says, well, if I brought you a map, could you show me where you saw it? Like, could you point out? So we get this is very intriguing, I think, you know, this sort of like mystery that we need to solve. Like, what is Holly after here? Right. Uh, I think that later in that same scene, Maurice even comes in and says like, oh, what you're looking for is the Siberian tit, which is also known as the gray-headed chickadee. And Maurice is right to point out that it's very common in other parts of the world, including Eastern Europe and Russia. It's super common over there, actually. But for Alaska, it is a very, very rare bird to see. Even in today's time, I was reading an article from like 2016 where there were a bunch of bird enthusiasts uh, and researchers who wanted to observe the Siberian tit. And they went out of their way uh, to go into like this very like uh, dangerous part of Alaska, actually. <laughs> like some people actually died, not like wow. this group themselves, but like rafters have died on this river gotcha. like recently whenever they're going on this trip. And they had to go on this long journey. And at the end of it, they didn't even find the bird. It was so rare to find. So you could get the excitement of what Ruthann and Holling are having in finding this bird. Yeah, because, you know, they may, we do see by the end of the episode, they keep like logs of all the birds that they've seen, which is really cool. So like they could go, you know, they could save up some money, fly to Russia. They would be able to log that bird. But imagine seeing it in Alaska, like you're, you know, your native, your like home state, uh, your stomping ground, you know, and, and seeing just this very rare sight. It's a lot like, uh, you know, we might think about the Aurora Borealis, you know, uh, but I guess for them that, you know, they can see it, you know, sometimes. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a thrilling adventure, I think. And, uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that I think it's important to point out that Maurice can't comprehend this. He can't yeah. understand why these two people would disobey, like, his logic, which you could be construed to be, like, everyone else's logic. How could you not think about what the rest of this civilization thinks of? How are you two going off on your own? And I think it's very important to point that out. Yeah, I guess to like the average person, you know, maybe if you were an ornithologist or a bird enthusiast, you would get excited. But to the average person, it sounds kind of silly that you would uh, you'd be so excited about what in, uh, in, in anywhere else is, is quite common, maybe. 
also on top of that, you know, something that maybe is not apparent yet, but like, you know, these two really old people, Holling and Ruthann, are going to go out on like a, a, a like a camping trip, and and they'll they'll talk about you know Advil and Ben Gay, and like you know, it's like we're too old for this stuff. So that's also kind of uncommon for their age, you know. Right. I think that's a very uh, neat scene. Before we get to that scene, though, uh, there is a takeoff scene yes. where Shelley is kind of helping Holling prepare for the trip. She's making sure that he has his Bushnell Space Master, which I did not know what it was. And uh, for those of you viewers, it is a scope. Yeah, it's like a rifle scope. Like, I think it was made for a gun, but he obviously uses it uh, to, uh, to scout or to see things. Yeah, I thought the most interesting thing about Bushnell was that it's one of the, he was one of the first American businessmen to realize the profitability of importing products manufactured in Asia. So, Bushnell would make very precise binoculars affordable to middle-class Americans for the first time through a strategy of importing from manufacturers in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Japan. He provided optics to his patented specifications. So he was able to sell his binoculars for half the price of equivalent products made in the United States or imported from Europe. So this was a man that was able to see the, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the availability of using East Asian manufacturers. Wow, yeah. Uh, also just some more, uh, some more branded content, uh, ectochrome. They use, he mentions high speed ectochrome. I guess the speed is like, uh, for low light situations, uh, ectochrome actually it's, it's a Kodak brand name, but, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it is. I was trying to figure out like what exactly sets ectochrome apart from maybe another, uh, Kodak brand. But, uh, uh, one thing I can say, at least from Wikipedia is that ectochrome, has a distinctive look that became familiar to many readers of National Geographic, which used it extensively for color photographs for decades in, in settings when Kodachrome was too slow. Oh, so Kodachrome must be, uh, I guess Ektachrome must be um, just high speed. Uh, that could be, uh, like uh. all Ektachrome might be very high speed, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, one thing I can say is I guess it's... Uh, was was a trademark uh, or sig- it, it was very common to see maybe in National Geographic, which applies here. You know, we want to get some nice nature photography of this Siberian tit. Right. Oh, and one other thing uh, that Shelley says uh, before they get out of there, she says something like, uh, I guess she's talking about the Siberian tit, like it has a snowball's chance in Heidi is what she says. Uh, now the phrase I always think of is a snowball's chance in hell or a snowball's chance in Hades, but she says Heidi and, uh, I think it's subtitled Heidi. I don't, I guess you could, I just never heard that, but I'm, I guess that's also a phrase or is it, uh, sort of like misspoken by, uh, by, by Shelly? I think it's misspoken cause yeah. I'm pretty sure it's in Hades, Hades, right? <laughs> yeah. I just Googled the phrase. So it's, it's used. Uh, it's used, but I think more commonly you hear Hades or, or, uh, or hell, a snowball's chance in hell. But, uh, mm. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was, that was just had to throw that in there. No, 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 no. Yeah. Plug that in. So like you were saying previously that they were using Bengay and Adaville for their, uh, <laughs> you know, old age that's happening. We can see that Ruthann and Holling are camped out there indulging in things they ordinarily wouldn't be doing yeah. if they were back home. So they're smoking cigars, drinking bourbon. It's even being amplified because they're outdoor. Ruthann says, like, I don't know why, but it like the tin cup, when you're using it and you're drinking bourbon out of it, there's just something about it. And I think there's actually something there. I think yeah. that 
when you're outside and it's really cold uh, like they are in that environment and you're huddled next to a campfire and you got in a tent, everything tastes much better. I, I don't know the psychology behind it, but I do know that it's true. <laughs> yeah, I think one, it's like a special scenario that you don't often do. So it's like a little treat maybe to your brain. But no, I think there really is a thing about uh, eating outside. Uh, when I was fortunate enough to travel uh, to France last year, we took all our meals outside and uh, I, I told myself, oh man, I need to do this like when I get back. I just have to eat outside. And I, <laughs> I'm beating myself up now because I haven't done that in a while. But uh, <laughs> it, it's it's the way to do it, I swear. It's, it's great. Uh, but yeah, this definitely fits in with some of our themes, like kind of not the status quo, not the traditional way. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing these things, uh, drinking bourbon out of tin cups, smoking cigars, sardine sandwich. I think, uh, hauling, I think explicitly says like, I would never eat this at home, but I just love it, uh, out here camping. You know, you might think of like beanie weenies or something like, yeah, it's like food that you, if you have it at home, that just seems like junk or not even that good. But out in the, out in nature, it's like, wow, look at this amazing packaged, uh, you know, canned food that is. It's just such a marvel. <laughs> yeah, and I think you hit the hammer on the nail right there. The scene ends by saying like, hey, should we set an alarm clock or should we let nature wake us up? And Holling says like, let's let nature wake us up. So both elderly characters are abandoning the constructs of domestic life and they're returning back to this other state with uh, the choices of sandwich, alcohol, and alarm clocks right there. They're giving up the trappings of what these other people are telling them how they should be living. So in this case, Maurice is saying, like, you shouldn't be looking for this bird. It's so common in other places. Like, why won't you just listen to me? Why don't you just listen to what everyone else is saying? And they're abandoning that right there, uh, which goes against the other two plot lines right there. Ed is listening to tradition. He's following what other people are telling him that he should be doing with this arranged marriage. And Maggie is kind of going along because she doesn't want to have to listen to the whispers of the townsfolk of what's going on with her private life. And... In this plot line, it's the only one in which they're liberated. They're very yeah. free. And I think that is the reason why you have this scene right there. I think that Janice Cycling was saying that, like, maybe this scene could be, you know, copy pasted into other episodes. And it probably could be because Northern Exposure is a kind of a strange show where, like, you could have, like, pillow shots that made no sense <laughs> and allow them to flow very well. But in this particular case, I think that the reason for it is that they wanted to juxtapose those two other plot lines and see like what happens if you just buck the status quo. Yeah, that is, that is a really good analysis there. Uh, one of the things that I was complaining about earlier and that Janice cycle pointed out. And again, I would say Janice cycle really enjoyed this plot line. Uh, but the, the feeling that it has kind of lacks a narrative, um, narrative track, like it doesn't really feel like a story. Um, but that, maybe is patently because of what you just said. Like it is an example of what happens when they are completely free. It's like, they don't have any conflict. Like, uh, uh we can get to it, but like basically what happens next is hauling and Ruthann, uh, go out in the snow and they see the bird and they take a picture of it. It's like, it's like, okay, that was easy. <laughs> they did it. Uh, so there's no conflict there. Uh, they just, uh, I think, I think maybe you're right. I think this plot line is included in this, episode because it really is um, an example of this theme, but it's like uh, sort of very, very unique when, when, when set against, uh, or it's, it's, it stands out when set against from uh, 
Ed and Joel and Maggie's plot line because it is what you just said. It's like the foil to that in a way, which unfortunately doesn't really have like a dramatic, it doesn't have a, a lot of dramatic value maybe, but uh, I wouldn't say value, but uh, it doesn't hit you the same way like a normal dramatic arc would because there's not really a crazy arc. It's it's pretty, pretty straightforward, but uh, when set aside in this analysis, I think it has a lot of value there to this episode. Right. I think that uh, if I bring it back to pop psychology, again, was Carl Jung. He had always said that one of the highest things that an individual could ever achieve was self-actualization uh, right here. And I think we can see it in two ways with Ruth Ann and Holling. We see it with them accepting that they're old. They're taking these medicines. They're not trying to hide it. They're just like, this is just what happens right here. When you get to this stage of life, you just got to do this right here. And you can also see it in the next scene whenever they're trying to hunt for the tits. The language that they're using is obviously both uh, figuratively and literally as if they were hunting them with a gun. Uh, Ruth Ann's got like her camera mounted like a gun. It's very intense. And I think they did that because is there really any difference between physically having the bird stuffed on the mantle or having a picture of the bird in a frame? It's you realizing like, I don't actually need like this physical object there to remind me that I saw it. Yeah, They have like the emotional and mental capacity to be like, the picture will do. Yeah, That will be fine enough. I think it even at, by the end of the episode, we'll, we can talk about the scene, but they uh, recount their like, bird logs like they have like some notepads with the, the different birds they they've logged and um they're just recounting the memories like i don't even think there's pictures there they maybe just be some scribbles so i mean maybe they did get they probably got pictures of those birds as well but uh but yeah even then like it's like they you know just having that memory is uh, uh is a lot of value to them you mentioned that they're kind of it's almost kind of like hunting the way they're holding their cameras uh i like hauling's Holling's like set up. He's got a really long telephoto, maybe like a zoom lens, like a huge barrel of a lens. And he even has like the little, it's like a rifle stock or something. Like it's like a gun <laughs> uh, that that is, it lies beneath the lens. So you can actually handle the lens. It's so huge. Uh, but it re really um, evokes like the image of a, of a rifle maybe. Yeah. So they see the bird, they snap some photos and uh, you want to get to that 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 scene where they're kind of like just talking about all the all the birds they've they've logged. Yeah, we carried on to the last scene where they are opening up the bird journal. Uh, I think that they've mounted the pictures that they've taken on the bar of the brick. Oh, um, nice. We can see that uh, that chickadee right there. And again, the Maurice is saying like, I just can't understand how two adults can be <laughs> so excited that something. Uh, on a fundamentally meaningless activity right there, which is, again, him having to restrict what he wants to see in other people. So he's very narrow-minded right there. And Shelly's saying, like, maybe it's just an old person thing. Yeah, he says, I wouldn't know anything about that and just leaves. Of course, Maurice is old, too, but I guess not as old as Hauling. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's the ending of that, that plot line. And, and I guess uh, all of the – that kind of covers the episode for us. But uh, as always, Charles, you know, we started this off. I said, like, you know, this is like whatever. It's it's a fine episode. I feel like by the end of our our talking about it, I always have a newfound appreciation. I think it really does. Like the show, really, you know, it lends itself to analysis, and it's. I think with anything, it's always better to dive in and like kind of really really think about what you're watching. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that the more stranger or the 
more lines that you throw out into the ocean, the more areas in which you can use to um, interpret. So what I mean by this is that like, if you cast a lot of lines, then you can catch a lot of fish, you can get a lot of different interpretations, and you can really just get into what you think deeper meanings can be. I really enjoy that in te uh, television series. Yeah, and I mean, like, of course, when you're watching a show, you're actively engaged, and you are thinking about it as you're watching it. The best shows engage you, engage the audience to actively participate and think about what they're seeing. But, uh, you know, there's always a lot to gain. You're always in your own mind when you're watching something for the first time. Uh, when you watch it the second time, maybe you can get out of your subconscious and, or you can, you can think about things a little, uh, more clearly or in a different light. And then it's always really interesting to see it from someone else's perspective too. So like our conversations and hearing these discussions. Do you ever, uh, do you ever get angry at yourself whenever someone else picks up on a very great detail that like can like monumentally change an episode, but you didn't pick up on it. Like, do you ever get angry at yourself for that? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's like, oh man, I'm jealous that I didn't catch that. And it like, cause it, if, yeah. <laughs> it re if it resonates with me, but if it's something that doesn't resonate with me, I'm usually like, nah, they got it all wrong. Like they're overanalyzing this. <laughs> but, I um, get so, <laughs> ah, God, you're right. I get like really jealous. It's like the first emotion <laughs> that comes to me. And then I get really angry at myself and being like, how come I didn't pick up on that? And like, I start thinking about my self-worth and then like, I just start like thinking about all the things right there that went wrong for me not to pick up <laughs> the detail. And the more obvious the detail, the more angrier I am. It's like, how did I not know that was a metaphor for a mother's womb? <laughs> Uh, but I think, uh, also now like just, uh, maybe the m more mature answer too, is that, uh, I think any work, even if it is like clearly symbolic or it does have some sort of underlying meaning, I think ultimately it's not like the, uh, author, it's not the creator's decision. What meaning that, that, uh, that piece of art or that work has, it's the audience that really can instill the meaning. So like, you know, you could, the, the artist could very clearly mean for something to be uh, symbolic or to have uh, a certain meaning. But at the end of the day, whatever the, the person who, the audience for this, whoever sees this, you know, their interpretation is what matters most to them, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, but that's like a whole, yeah, that's, a, that's a, such a, <laughs> it's a, a whole large Patreon discussion. episode, you know? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Do you want, do you want to plug? What I think could be the Patreon episode. Right uh, yeah. Well, so Charles, you were talking about uh, we could do an episode about the Jungian archetypes, which you've kind of uh, started to lay out in this episode with the sort of the 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 king of uh, sorry the Wizard of Oz uh, deal. But I think that would be great. That would make a great episode to analyze the characters with this. Uh, these Jungian archetypes. Right. So we're going to have a special Patreon episode where we're going to be talking about each character and how they relate to one of the archetypes right there. If you want to hear it and you want to support us, again, you can support us on patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we typically will invite on a friend, uh, someone who has never seen the show Northern Exposure before, to get a fresh perspective, an outside take, uh, also, I guess part of our mission statement is to expand the reach of the show. So this is us doing that, I guess. Uh, but anyway, today we have, uh, my good friend, Patrick, Charles, I believe you've, you've met Patrick. Patrick was one of my old roommates. Yeah. Okay. So the only memory I have of Patrick <laughs> that might be like seared into my brain for some reason is that I believe he slept in Spider-Man PJs 
and that his bed sheets were uh, like the Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, like that's yeah. I think this is embroidered <laughs> on there. I can't exactly remember if it was uh, the pajamas, the bed sheet, but yeah, definitely he had some fun, some fun uh, bedtime apparel. And uh, de- yeah, definitely the bed was adorned with like some comic book uh, figures and stuff. <laughs> he always had the uh, uh, like the Bill Murray's jersey from Space Jam. That was a common uh, a common costume for him. But anyway, Patrick is uh, well on top of being a filmmaker, he's also uh, studying to be a veterinarian. And uh, you know, but you know, we we knew each other as uh, filmmakers and obviously roommates. But Patrick, I feel like he has a pretty good taste in movies um, and TV, for that matter. So I was interested to see what he might think about this show. And, well, let's see what he's got to say. All right. So I just finished the episode. And I've got to start with saying that it was good, but it was not the show that I think I thought it was. Because I looked down during the opening credits and... I felt like I missed a name, you know, like I was kind of like looking up, looking down, like I was writing things down. I had written, you know, about the opening scene that there was a lot of Woody Allen music going on and that they were talking about like Canadian geography, which I'm pretty sure it's not in Canada. I'm pretty sure it's in Alaska because they talk about the tits in Alaska later on. And then I was like, what, what's going on here? Did these people have sex or not? And uh, writing about the Paul Simon-esque or like Casio pre-recorded kind of, you know, those old keyboard kind of default sounds, opening credit song going on. And then I was like, I think I missed Rick Moranis' name. Is this not the show with Rick Moranis? And then, so the whole time I was kind of waiting for Rick Moranis to show up and I was like, all right, well, now it's like past the second commercial break. There's still no Rick Moranis. Anyway, no Rick Moranis, still good show. Let's go on. Uh, Dr. Guy, total jerk. I hope he's not supposed to be the main character because um didn't like him. Like, he's just walking around talking about how he banged a patient, but she doesn't remember. And I'm like, oh, God, was she drunk? Like, that's not, like, I know the 90s or 80s or whatever were weird. And, like, we weren't so against that back then but this did not age well if that's what's going on turns out it wasn't so cool uh i guess the doctor's from new york he makes a new york reference later on but he definitely is acting like he's from new york which i guess is why he's a jerk you know those new york stereotypes wizard of oz reference cool there's a weird pause after that which i guess was like a time to set up commercial break i guess this was a show that had commercials right probably you're kind of not used to that anymore with how these old streaming shows work. So that was fun. Let's see what else I have. Bushwell Space Master. Yeah. Yeah, that was... I was like, oh, this old guy is sleeping with his bartender also? Okay, that, cool. And then later there's that vibe where it's like, is he going to hook up with the old lady when they're deer... Or bird watching? Which, by the way, they make bird watching seem really cool. There's like that long, really cinematic... Uh, paced out thing with him in the woods and i liked how his lens had the little gun attachment to it that was kind of fun i have also written down a bunch of times that ed seems like a really good guy the friendship bracelet and so he just he just did so many cute things i have also the colors and the costumes were well coordinated so yeah good show glad to finally get to watch an episode 
even though there's not Rick Moranis, at least in this episode. If he's in another episode, let me know so I can watch that one. All right. All right, so that was Patrick's commentary on the episode. Patrick seems to be really, really into Rick Moranis. He was really hoping that uh, he would show up here. I'm not too sure what television show he was confusing it with. So, okay, this is good. This is good. I was actually, I just texted him because uh, I was I was wondering as well. I said, what show was Rick Moranis in? Like, what show were you thinking of? And uh, Patrick said, pretty sure it was this one. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think Rick Moranis is in this show. But if he does come on the show, we'll definitely get um, Patrick back if, if he is a guest star in Northern Exposure. Um, but we did continue talking, and uh, it turns out the show that he was thinking of, um, I don't think it's actually a real show, but it was like a, a segment on um, Second City TV, SCTV. It was the characters uh, Bob and Doug. That was like a segment that they would do. And I've never seen it, but I think they spun it off into a movie called Strange Brew. So you could look up Strange Brew. That would also maybe pull up some stuff. It was Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, Bob and Doug, and I guess they were kind of like youpers. So like, you know, people in Canada or in the, you know, upper uh, United States, upper Midwest, I guess is what you would call it. Um, So I don't really know exactly what it was, but they were, maybe it was just, a comedy of those characters. I'm not really sure what the segment was about. It did also spin off to a uh, an animated series, an animated sitcom in uh, 2009. So that's like a little more recent, but this uh, but this Bob and Doug, that's from like the 80s. Yeah, so Bob and Doug was a character on SETV uh, done by Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. A uh, fun little fact, they actually brought back that duo onto a Disney film called Brother Bear. Uh, they played like oh, wow. an anthropomorphized moose or something like that. <laughs> uh, they brought it back for Brother Bear 2. And then that was the last thing that uh, that Rick Moranis was in because unfortunately, as most people know, he decided to step away from Hollywood because he wanted to take care of his children full time. But I just found this out. He's coming back. Coming back on that reboot of Honey, We Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I feel but, like... Go ahead. Oh, what's that? You said but? But they messed up because they called this film Shrunk. And it's presumably from what I can get from the plot synopsis is that Josh Gad is the main character and his father is Rick Moranis and they called it shrunk. But what they should have called it instead was dad. I shrunk the kids too. Wait, because wait, I'm confused. So the original film is called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm-hmm. And then they had the sequel film, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Yeah. Now, presumably, Rick Moranis has a son. Oh. And that son also shrunk his kids. And he sh- oh. they should have named the film Dad, Dad I Shrunk I the Kids 2 because 2 is a pun. I don't know how. <laughs> it's so obvious. Oh, I get it. Josh Gad is going to be shrinking his kids, but his dad is... Yeah, that's... Wow. Uh, I, I think Rick Moranis has been, you know, coming back in like little... He's made appearances lately, like in the past few years, right? Like uh, in commercials or in... Uh, uh, I dare I say Saturday Night Live or just like little things, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of messed up, but the most recent thing that made headlines was that he got assaulted. Yes, I did in, see that. In uh, in New York, uh, there was a very funny joke uh, but from Bill Burr. He said it on his uh, Saturday Night Live monologue where he's saying like, did you guys hear that Rick Moranis got assaulted yesterday? New York City is back, baby! <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Um uh, poor Rick Moranis. No, who would come on? 
Um, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that guy, like, he done, yeah, yeah, he done messed up once he realized <laughs> he what he did. <laughs> right. Um, okay, well, let's focus on uh, what the other notes that Patrick had for this episode. Um, obviously, he said it's not the show that he thought he thought it was. Um, he's confusing it, obviously, I guess, with uh, Bob and Doug. Um, but he noted the music in the beginning. Uh, a couple notes on that, like the Woody Allen music is what he called it. Uh, it's that jazzy clarinet. It's definitely a David Schwartz original. David Schwartz is the composer for the show. And um, yeah, I feel like they play that often to evoke Joel's New York, sort of like history, his just like his roots there, just to bring back that, you know, this is like a a New York Jew in Alaska. And uh, also he noted the opening theme song, like the synthesized instruments, you know, it's like harmonica and stuff. I don't even know if that was a real harmonica or if it was a synthesized instrument, but obviously the drums and like the bass, it all sounds kind of uh, like it came from a keyboard, which isn't knocking that uh, song at all. Uh, of course, that song is like a huge hit. And uh, the way Patrick is describing it is like, you know, Paul Simon, Casio sounds. So, yeah. Yeah. Patrick also mentioned that he liked the bird watching segment. He said it made it look cool. I think birdwatching is kind of cool by itself, right? Yeah, I was intrigued by this plot line in the first scene when it was introduced, like when Holling was uh, hearing the story of the, what, the, the bird that Walt saw and just like putting the pieces together. But I started getting, you know, we talk, like it's, it's like kind of a, a slower, more uh, passive plot line. Uh, but no, I gotta agree. Yeah, that was a pretty, it was a pretty good sequence when they're doing the, um, when they're going out on like the hunt, like in quote, in quotes, um, cause they're just going out to take pictures, but the music, we probably touched on this. The music is, uh, really well placed and, uh, just like the stalking and sort of like the coordination and the, uh, like the rifle part, like stock or whatever. I'm not really sure what that is, uh, that is attached to Holling's lens. Patrick also mentions, well, he hopes Joel's not the main character because he's kind of a jerk, but then he also relates it. You know, it's like the new, I think he's from New York, New York jerk. He slept with his patient. I didn't think about this. I don't typically think of Maggie as Joel's patient, but that's true. She's, she is Joel's patient. Uh, but I mean, among other things, like it's such a small town, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. But like he'd be, I mean, everyone's Joel's patient. Yeah. In, in that regard, he's, he's the only doctor. <laughs> yeah. Patrick mentioned the Wizard of Oz scene. He liked that. and But he also mentioned there was a weird pause after it. And I did uh, just go back and watch that moment. Um, it does seem to be extended. Um, you know, I guess they must have been trying to buy some time before that act break. What happens is, you know, he, he gives that line about Toto. What is it? It's like, I'm not Toto. You're not Dorothy can't click your heels together and make this all go away. Um, and then yeah. Joel storms off and the sequence of shots is Joel storms away, leaving Maggie alone. Then it cuts to another shot where Joel is sort of in the background and he starts moving away again. So it feels like a little, like an odd edit and almost elongated because at first Joel already left, like he left the frame. But then when we cut to the next shot, he's still there and he's still leaving. And um, Maggie, it holds on Maggie for pretty long time before she sighs because she's like i think at that moment maggie is not sure like what's going on or she's like i can't believe joel like what is he thinking um and then it cuts to commercial break 
Huh, that's strange. I, I never actually caught that for some reason. That sailed past me. I was probably still thinking about the language they just used previously. Mm-hmm. So, like, I probably wasn't thinking about what was going on in the screen whenever I knew it was about the fade to black. Yeah, yeah. I, I The same thing. I didn't, I had to go back to watch it because I didn't clock that the first time. I guess I was just felt it coming or something. But, uh, yeah, it is, it is kind of oddly elongated. Not so much that it's, uh, like, an error or something. But, yeah, it just, it feels like a, a long pause. What else? Let's see. Patrick says, Ed seems like a really great guy. Uh, Yeah, obviously, I think a lot of our guests love Ed. We love Ed. I think if Patrick was in Northern Exposure, he would be Ed. He (laughs) kind of looks a little like Ed, and I think he could play Ed very well. Okay, I have one last thing. Back on Rick Moranis, okay? Okay. So I was just imagining, like, if Rick Moranis was in Northern Exposure, uh, what character would he play? And I, I came up with one, or I thought of one that I think would fix. It would be good. I shouldn't have said. It. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. But do you have a? Do you have a? Any idea? Like if Rick Moranis guested on the show, or if he replaced a character, like if he he played, he portrayed one of the characters that's already in the main cast. What would you have, Charles? Oh gosh, this is such an open ended one because the obvious one was that you can see him replacing Joel. Yeah, but I guess so. I can see him replacing Mike. As well, yeah, I was. And, that's what I was gonna say. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think replacing Mike is a, a sure shot way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, based on you know just looking at him. But I think it would be interesting to have uh, Rick Moranis guest starring, and I don't know, just he, he can play so many things. So yeah. Like I, I think the book is so open ended. Like it doesn't have to be like an agoraphobic meek person. Like I, I, I could see him playing like another role. Because he's an eccentric fella on what he plays, so you can just fit him into what so you know anything whatsoever within the town. Yeah, I think he'd be a great guest star, like featured on an episode. Um, Mike was like, I think who I finally decided. I was like, man, what if Mike was played by Rick Moranis? I think it would just be so much better. Nothing against, uh, but you know, maybe because there's nothing against Anthony Edwards. Like he's he's a fine actor. I li- actually like him. So maybe even if Rick Moranis are in the show. You know, I think it's maybe just the character of Mike that I have the problem with. Uh, but it's a good fit for Rick Moranis because, uh, you know, Rick Moranis is sort of like a little baby uh, and and Mike is kind of like that. They're, they're very um, vulnerable. But maybe if you think about Rick Moranis in like Ghostbusters, uh, he's <laughs> really crazy in that movie. Uh, so maybe he could play like an Adam character, though I think uh, Adam Arkin has really got that role. You know, that's 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 his role, you know. Well, cool. I think that does it for Patrick's commentary. Patrick, thanks so much for watching this episode and taking the time to record your thoughts. Uh, so last minute as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, we got to get you back on. Hopefully, if Rick Moranis appears on this show or uh, maybe we can get you on the Patreon or something. But um, Charles, next week we'll be returning with an episode called Northern Lights. It's the 18th episode in season four, Northern Lights. Any predictions for what that might be? Hmm. I think maybe it's going to be an episode that's about something that happens to the town on a yearly cycle. Like how, you know, how like the Aurora Borealis only comes once a year or something like that. So maybe that's what they're trying to go for. It might not be like the literal Northern Lights that are coming. It could just be some other event, but I'm going to use that as my guess. Think you're pretty close, Charles. Uh, but we'll save that for next week. Uh, all right, Charles. Thanks for podding with me. All right. See you next week. 
Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Patrick for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveryexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoveryexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.